Hello and welcome to the 2019 F1 Strategy Report, powered by Apex Race Manager, the mobile race management simulator. My name's Michael Laminato, and this is Round 6, the Monaco Grand Prix. Despite the race running to 78 laps, the outcome of the Monaco Grand Prix hinged on a single moment of safety car decision-making, turning what should have been another comfortable Mercedes 1-2 finish into a Max Verstappen siege on Lewis Hamilton's lead. So to dissect the race's tense ending, and to understand Charles Leclerc's key role in all of it despite failing to finish the Grand Prix, I'm joined by Stuart Codling, F1 Racing Magazine and Autosport Executive Editor. Stuart, how are you doing? I'm fine, thank you very much, Michael. This is this is a, an extraordinary scene uh, that I uh, I can describe to you uh, as as we communicate. This bedroom in an Airbnb with clothes and sheets all over the floor, spare change, and ironing <laughs> board. This this is not what many people think about when they think of the Monaco <laughs> Grand Prix. And, and I have to emphasise, it's not my bedroom. I was on a sofa bed in the living room next door. <laughs> no one ever thinks about the Monaco, the Monday after the Monaco Grand Prix, do they? It's too easy to just pretend it, it finishes on Sunday and no one has to do the cleaning up. Indeed, although this, this has been quite an interesting place because we're in Villefranche-sur-Mer, which is the sort of the small town where the Rolling Stones decamped to when they became tax exiles uh, in the 60s. And they recorded Exile on Main Street, their seminal album, in I think the the, the basement of the former post office in the centre of town, which had been at the SS base during World War II. And apparently there was loads of sort of Nazi stuff still kicking around in the basement. It's uh, it's one of the fun facts they really should have put at the start of the, the broadcast for the Formula One race this weekend, I think. It was lacking anything to do with Nazism or the Rolling Stones, actually. Yeah, I don't, I don't, <laughs> I don't think they look much further than Wikipedia for that little fun fact. <laughs> well, someone could probably update the page. Uh, the Monaco Grand Prix this year, it, I mean, interesting milestone in terms of the championship and certainly the race delivered some talking points, but... Approaching this Grand Prix, in many respects, this was the last opportunity to test just how flawless, if we can use that word, the Mercedes car is this season. It's been not only a bit of a, a bogey circuit for that team, but it's maybe the last unique type of circuit for us to approach on the calendar. Uh, everyone thought, even if they didn't want to openly admit it, Red Bull Racing and Ferrari, that maybe they could have a shot. Wasn't to be, of course. Lewis Hamilton won this one. But you could see from early on that Ferrari was... Very keen to make this their weekend. You could see it from Sebastian Vettel's driving, for example. Very close to the barriers often. Yeah, and a, a little bit too close uh, at, at one point, certainly on Saturday. Certainly, well, they, they needed a result, really, didn't they? And what a turnaround after pre-season testing suggested they had the the quickest car. And, and really, I think, I think two out of the first four Grand Prix this season they should have won but failed due to uh, operational errors and operator error uh, in, in some cases so you know they, they really needed to get off the back foot I think Mercedes have certainly found something in the car or they've found the way of switching it on and they're really reaping the rewards of consistency of, of sort of sticking with their design philosophy and evolving it over the past few years and and that seems that continuity seems to give them a, a better platform for staying competitive whereas everyone else is sort of kind of having to reinvent the wheel every year to try and catch up and you see Ferrari that every time they seem to find something in the engine or in the chassis or the aero they almost seem to go backwards <laughs> somewhere else so Monaco which as you say a bogey circuit for both Mercedes and Lewis Hamilton I think off the top of my head is this only the third time He's won here, really. I mean, he should have won more Monaco Grand Prix. Yeah. So it it wasn't a circuit at which they or he 
particularly were expected to shine. And certainly for the first few days of practice, it looked like Lewis was kind of out of sorts. We weren't sure whether it was because of the the death of Nicky Lauda, who was the guy who was very much the driving force behind him moving to Mercedes and, and achieving so much success over the past few years, or whether it was just, as he said, he was struggling to unleash the one lap pace from the car. The, the new Pirellis just seemed to be a little bit truculent in terms of being able to get enough heat into them to switch them on. And Lewis was finding that... Uh, he just wasn't able to warm them up. And it was only kind of in his final Q3 lap that he did an extra push lap to, or prep lap rather to try and get a bit of heat into them. And even then it didn't work. And then he just thought, well, you know, screw it. I'll just go for broke. And that's where he found the pace. So it was actually really dramatic in qualifying. It's such a, a build-up kind of circuit, isn't it? Where drivers, the longer they're out there, the, the better they should get. Certainly Ferrari found that during qualifying. We'll talk about that in just a second, but... In terms of this circuit suddenly coming to Mercedes after the, the last couple of years of being quite difficult, I'm beginning to wonder this season, I mean, we're going to have to address this at some point this year, when people might start to, rather than look at Mercedes' domination uh, as being boring or repetitive, this season in particular, looking on it as the fact that this team is doing such a good high-level job, is this really the last box they kind of had to tick in this long run of championship winning seasons, winning the Monaco Grand Prix fairly comfortably, even if strategy made it more difficult than it should have been, uh, to say that, well, this is the, the ultimate version of Mercedes, if you like? Yeah, I think you can look at that across a whole range of sports. You see teams, particularly team sports, I think, where teams attain such a high level of, of operational excellence that even when they're not kind of firing on all cylinders, as it were, they're, they're able to pick it up. Now, you, you see it in rugby. I'm about to uh, produce an English rugby reference, which may not <laughs> resonate with all your listeners, but uh, uh, Saracens, for instance, and Exeter, the, the two great forces of English rugby, are, are teams that have, have different philosophies. Saracens have an awful lot of uh, internationals in in blatant uh, defiance of the salary cap. Uh, Exeter have uh, pick up pick unknowns and then make them stars. But they, they are teams that are just phenomenal because they are so strong. And even when they make mistakes, someone's able to pick it up and, and, and do something with it. And you saw that this weekend where Mercedes arguably got Lewis Hamilton's race strategy horrendously wrong. Mm. And yet he was somehow able to parlay that in, into into victory uh, under siege, as you say. Maybe he decided that he would um, follow the, the great example of someone else who was once under siege, Steven Seagal. <laughs> that was... We've gotten a couple of references in there, actually. We're really ticking them off so far. Um, the, if we talk about this circuit being a confident circuit, and as you say, it was that last lap for Lewis Hamilton in qualifying where things finally came together, much to the disappointment of Valtteri Bottas, who'd looked like he was building to pole position, but that final run of his was, was marred by traffic. But the absence from this point in qualifying was really felt by the fact that Charles Leclerc was not partaking he perhaps could have been in that conversation. It's, of course, impossible to know. But this was an enormous qualifying error by Ferrari on a weekend. As we've said, they really should have been trying to perform. Ferrari, especially considering that over the course of the weekend, they'd sort of made a point about talking about strategy in the lead up to this race and the lead up to qualifying. I mean, how serious, how substantial an error is this for a team that thinks it should be competing for the championship? Yeah, it's a major error. Now, I, I suppose we, we should praise them and, and let, let's let 
put this one out there. They do deserve a lot of praise for the, the new perestroika almost that's come over the team with Mattia Bonotto at, at the head now in that they are that much more open. And 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 apparently it, it was Mattia Bonotto who said who suggested let's have a session for the media where we put our head of strategy and our head of vehicle dynamics to to just explain how, how you how you go about trying to race for the win in 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 Monaco and it's a little bit unfortunate that uh, the following day um, they they blundered so spectacularly but yeah the long and the short of it is that Leclerc had the pace. Probably for pole position, maybe he was certainly fastest in third practice, and then the the critical error they made was that they decided they needed to get through Q one with just using one set of tires, which is fair enough. That's sensible. They have more tires left over for maybe two runs in Q three, but obviously to use your two sets of tires in Q three, you have to get to Q three. <laughs> seems fairly obvious, not to them it seems, uh, and. So it it was a sort of a, a collection of errors that led to this this terrible calamity of Leclerc not even making it through Q1. Basically, he then blundered. He, on his fastest lap, he'd been really quick in the first two sectors, locked up at Rascasse, um, flat spotted a tyre. So he, he basically wasn't able to do any more laps on that set. And Ferrari thought at that point that he'd gone fast enough to make the cut for Q1. Whereas Lewis Hamilton um, went out on the same set of tyres he'd set his quickest time on and went even faster. I think he found four tenths on on another lap. Mm -hmm. And even the conversation Lewis had with Mercedes was, uh, they said, we think you've done enough to get through. If you want to stay out, feel free. So Lewis said, okay, well, let's see what I can do. And he found four tenths. And it just so happened over the final 10 minutes of the session that the track evolved a bit. Other drivers found more confidence and I think sort of 11 or 12 drivers all posted their fastest laps in the in the last few minutes. And it was just bung, bung, bung. Uh, Leclerc went down, 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 down. And the, the sort of the tragic irony is that the person who finally bunked him out in, into the drop zone was his own teammate who himself had to scrabble around to set a quick lap. So I suppose the only sucker Ferrari can draw from this terrible mistake is that it's only the, it's the second smallest gap ever between the fastest car in Q1 and the first to be eliminated. I think the the, the closest was Timo Glock in 2009. So that's the, uh, ever, ever since this three-stage qualifying system came in. It's, uh, I'm sure, only cold comfort for Charles Leclerc, who unfortunately was even caught, of course, by the Formula One cameras looking extremely disappointed. The most disappointed I think he's ever been spotted to be at least in formula one yeah he needs to work on his poker face <laughs> yeah exactly and at all places at monaco uh i think it, what's really interesting about this situation and it does come up perhaps more or more obviously at least at monaco is that so much of this grand prix and particularly in qualifying where there's that effect of the track uh ramping up and, and lewis hamilton deciding to stay out alluded to it is that there's so much intuition involved at a circuit like this and ferrari said it relied on the data and its simulation of how much margin it should be leaving at that point in qualifying when it decided that Leclerc should stay in. And even when he asked whether or not he should go back out, they relied on that data. It's, I mean, it's a, a difficult question to ask, I suppose, because there's never necessarily a right answer. But it's one of those situations where you could ask, does Formula One, is it too reliant on data when it seems fairly obvious from a human perspective, if you like? 
what decision should be made? I think it's actually a very human mistake to make. It's target fixation. It's why, um, you know, you think how relative to the amount of space there is on the road, you know, there's, there's kilometers and kilometers of road out in out in the world and not that many lamp posts <laughs> in comparison with the actual yards and yards of asphalt and yet how is it that cars and motorcyclists manage to wrap themselves around those lamp posts with such regularity it's because when you're having a crash or you you're making a horlicks of your steering you're staring at the lamp post and thinking don't hit that don't hit that don't hit that ow and i think what what happened here was that ferrari fixated on this target of not using more than one set of tires they fixated on 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 their information on their estimate on their data uh, and then they weren't able to pull themselves away from that take a wider view and think well, actually, actually this is going wrong we need to do something and that that i think is is a very very human mistake to make and mattia binotto said that that ultimately was the mistake they made they they should have had fail safes they have people watching the progress of other cars and who have a the, the power to override the decision and this didn't happen so it, it's it was a misjudgment upon a misjudgment i feel like we're talking about this every week on this show what mistake has ferrari made this race this was a high profile one given the location and the driver involved and where he was eliminated uh mattia bernardo seems like the kind of man who can control these situations he's very cool calm and collected and seems to be having that effect on the team but the longer the season goes without a Ferrari win and with so many mistakes, will, in your opinion, is something going to break here? Will something have to give? Yeah, I, I think any other team, maybe not. But with Ferrari, you have the sort of the irrational expectations of the Italian <laughs> nation and certainly the Italian media who are not uniformly bright people. <laughs> they have knee-jerk reactions. They need constant headlines. So... Um, as with previous ruling regimes at Ferrari, it doesn't take a lot of lack of success for the pitchfork mob to start forming. <laughs> well, we'll wait and see. Another uh, another chapter in this uh, unfolding championship narrative. But interestingly enough, it was actually Charles Leclerc who decided this race, despite not even finishing it, despite not even getting past uh, or getting even to the 20 lap mark. Uh, he attempted valiantly to recover to somewhere. I think Max Verstappen got to ninth this time last year after not qualifying at all due to his FP3 crash. So maybe that was his target. Uh, and he came undone at Ras Cass after pulling a really good move, actually, on um, Romain Grosjean. He couldn't manage it against Nico Hulkenberg, picked up a puncture, was speeding way too quickly back to the pit lane for that kind of damage, destroyed his car, but spilt a whole bunch of debris and rubber all over the circuit, triggering a safety car. Yeah, it was... It was quite an extraordinary moment, as you say, and I suppose that, you know, if we drill down into what Charles did wrong, I think he got impatient behind Grosjean, and then once he did that move into Raskas, he then came up behind Hulkenberg, who um, was aware of what he'd done to Grosjean and didn't leave as much room, and Charles tried to do the same thing, and ended up in that spin, so that screwed Hulkenberg's race, because he got a puncture, he pitted under green flag conditions so he went to the back uh, and also the the front runners decided it was their time to go now arguably it was the right time to go for lewis because he'd been complaining that his tires were dead now that put mercedes in a quandary because those cars were running nose to tail so what bottas did was slow the cars down behind him so he didn't have to double stack behind lewis in the pit lane which he did very well the trouble is that 
uh, Red Bull then serviced Max Verstappen just slightly quicker, and and Max got out a little bit ahead and nosed straight sort of. He was sort of half ahead of Valtteri. Now he says he didn't see Bottas, and I don't know. We've got to take him at his word, but he certainly hit Bottas hard enough for Bottas to crack a wheel rim against the pit wall. So that was him gone. He had to make another pit stop, which dropped him to to fourth in that little battle. There was also a little knock on effect for Max because he had activated his start talk map uh, when he got into the pit lane, as you do, because it sort of reduces the wheel spin you get away, you, you have from the getaway. But then in the sort of the confusion that, oh, I've hit someone, what's happening? He forgot to switch it back into the, the normal race talk mode. And then because you're only allowed to adjust that in the pit lane, he was locked into that start talk mapping for the rest of the race. So he had this horrendous turbo lag and a sort of bucking bronco effect. So that was very tricky for him. So your your net result of this phase among the front runners is Lewis keeps his lead. Max gets second, you've got Vettel third on the road, Bottas fourth, and now a a sort of a potential penalty hanging over the head of of Max for the unsafe relief release, which he got, which is a five-second penalty, which he would then have to serve either on his next pet, pit stop or it would be put onto his time at the end of the race. So that's something for him to consider. Now, amongst that leading group, we also had another couple of pitters which which was quite surprising for me and the the lead one of those was was Dan Ricardo who was uh, what we might say is leader of the class B at this point he'd come from um let me have a quick look he was he was six on the grid but he'd actually uh, beaten Kevin Magnussen the the hash driver who'd qualified fifth uh to, to steal fifth spot uh so they were running fifth and sixth and they both pitted went on to the the harder tyre and that that really destroyed their race because they ended up right at the back because of the safety car. And as it happened, Kimi Raikkonen didn't in the Alfa Romeo didn't stop until about lap 50. So they were stuck in this really long train and that absolutely destroyed their race. So that opened the way for Carlos Sainz to become the, the class B king. And it also... Uh, in, enabled a little bit of redemption for Red Bull's Pierre Gasly, who was having his usual sort of not quite a race, not <laughs> ahead of ahead of Class B, but not quite on the tail of, of of the leaders, including his teammate. It was exactly that, and I think to go back to the battle for front runners, there are a couple of things to unpack uh, with that midfield fight, particularly with McLaren. Uh, but the the second part of this pit stop phase was that there was a divergence of, of options on tires. Uh, it seemed obvious to Mercedes, I suppose, that they should go for the medium tires. Perhaps it was because there was this threat of rain in the air. There, there always seems to be a threat of rain in the air in Monaco, and it never arrives. I mean, we should start discounting that to a certain degree. But also the tire warm up on the restart. If anyone behind them had opted for the mediums and they're on the hards, could have been compromising. But Vettel and Verstappen opted for hards, and Bottas at his second stop also switched to the hard. So, in effect, Hamilton was the only runner on the medium tyre. Coupled with the fact that Verstappen, of course, not only wanted to win this Grand Prix, but needed to build a five-second buffer uh, to negate that five-second penalty from the, the pit stop crash or collision with Valtteri Bottas, created this really interesting uh, dynamic between Hamilton and Verstappen in the battle for the lead. 
both with kind of uh, different motivations. But in the end, as we heard from Lewis Hamilton's radio calls, he was certainly the man suffering a great deal more uh, on ties that he was adamant wasn't going to make it to the end of the race. Yeah, as you say, as with any Monaco Grand Prix, the the weather watchers are out in force (laughs) looking at the radar. And before the race, people were coming up to me and saying, yeah, yeah, rain at four, rain at four, (laughs) for sure. I was thinking, well, you know, Great. I'd, I'd love to have, you know, with, with, with my garden, I'd love to have this level of accuracy. You know, I'd, I'd, I'd love to go out on my bicycle on the weekends. I'd love to know when the rain arrives so that I can hide in a tunnel or something at the appropriate moment. But, you know, as Yoda would say, so certain are you. But um, the, the, the other interesting thing I suppose we should pick up on is that the, on, on the, the, the Formula One management timing screens, you do get a readout on uh, mm-hmm. on, on weather conditions. And the 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 uh, as you know from attending Grand Prix yourself, the uh, it's it's very definitive yeah. on whether it's wet or dry. You you have a blue line and it's either it, it's it's a one or a zero. <laughs> one is wet, zero is dry, and it's either one or the other. And this thing was was showing wet throughout. And I was looking <laughs> out the window and thinking, well, I can't see this rain. So I can imagine it would have confused a few people in the pit lane, even though they have, you know, a, a, a cloud radar. And the the wind direction did change through 180 degrees in the run up to the race. It had been coming from the north, which is the mountain, uh, which kind of would usually signal possible rain because Basically, as you know, you hang around near mountains. You, you usually the, the the nastiness comes down at you from them, and and it had turned around completely to come from the south. So it's coming off the sea. So it really was kind of confused and changeable. I wouldn't have bet my house on whether it was going to rain at four o'clock. <laughs> and and then as you say, there was this divergence of of tire strategies. Um, I suppose for, to some extent medium was maybe the right answer at the time with Bottas. Obviously, his mediums, he couldn't use them because he'd cracked a rim. So the the hards were the only ones he went on to. Now, for the other drivers, I think hards were a gamble because Verstappen certainly had not completed a single lap on hard Mm. tyres that weekend until that point. He only had one set. Not only that, he hadn't even done a lap on full tanks in practice because they'd had a few problems here and there. So really, it, it, it was kind of asking a lot of him as well and Vettel, as well as asking a fair bit of Hamilton to keep those tyres alive. But of course, the, the problem for Mercedes then is that their rivals have committed themselves to not making a further pit stop. That means Lewis himself can't make another pit stop without losing track position. So he had to keep those tyres alive. And that's why we heard him right from the start of that stint, having panicky radio messages saying, are we doing the right thing? Uh, and also he was driving really, really slowly, sort of the, the one minute 18s, which is seven seconds a lap off the pace they were doing in practice. And the effect of that was to concertina the the whole pack. And you had people like George Russell down mm. at the back in the Williams. His engineers were telling him we, we could be on for sixth place <laughs> here because we were really close. So it, it, it really was a kind of properly Monaco casino style roulette only until um, 
Max put so much pressure on Lewis that Lewis had to start picking up the pace. And then we kind of saw these gaps grow, particularly ahead of Raikkonen, who was struggling with a car problem and trying to keep his tyres alive. Uh, and also Norris, uh, who was just outside the top 10, who was being used by McLaren as a rolling roadblock to protect signs. It's interesting in those moments as well, because it became fairly obvious from a certain point in the race that the lap count is so high here. So it sounds dramatic to say with 40 laps to go, but it was perhaps even earlier than that, that it was obvious that Hamilton's tyres would be in a very poor state by the end of this race, not simply because he was calling it out. But it's always interesting when you hear engineers reply back that everything is going to be absolutely fine as if they've got something planned that's going to save the day. There's so much mind management involved in Monaco, which I think is really part of the attraction of it. It's not quite at the same level as other circuits. How much was this really down to Lewis Hamilton being the kind of driver who can execute a game where the pressure is so high, given the state of the tyres, the driver behind him so quick, and still deliver at what was really a faultless drive? Yeah, sometimes when Lewis is coming over the radio sounding panicky and, and edgy, you kind of think, is, is it a case of the gentleman doth protest too much? Because Bono is always ice cool. He's, you know, if, if, if I'm ever on an aeroplane in trouble, I want the captain to sound as, as relaxed as Pete Bonington does when he's dispensing bad news to Lewis Hamilton or, or telling him that he's, he's going to have to do something difficult. But I suppose maybe that's, that's the relationship they need to have. And, and Lewis seems to respond at his best when he's got this cool, calm customer uh, on the pit wall saying, it's all right, you can do it. And then obviously Lewis pushed back a little bit harder. So they escalated and they got a different cool, calm, collected <laughs> voice, James Vowell's the chief strategist, to say, uh, we believe in you, you can do this. And, and blimey, he only went and did it. And, you know, you watch the race, you can see the state his front tyres were in. They really were terrible. He was understeering everywhere. But the the, the fortunate thing for Lewis was that his rear tyres were okay. So he was perfectly okay under traction for the really, really important parts of the lap where you do defensive driving. That is onto the start finish straight and also out of Portier where you go through the tunnel, you've got that braking zone at the end for the chicane. So he was just able to hook up enough traction to be able to you know, make enough of a meaningful gap to Verstappen for Max not to be able to attack him, except just that once where he had a go and they had a, a tiny bit of the touch and both drivers afterwards said, well, you know, no harm, no foul. Now, that's the, the way it ended on the road, certainly. Lewis Hamilton won this Grand Prix. Max Verstappen was eventually demoted to fourth to serve that five-second time penalty. All Sebastian Vettel and Valtteri Bottas had to do was keep within that, and they'd be promoted to the podium as they were. Uh, but the, the fight in the midfield over that safety car pit stop, we sort of alluded to it already. It was Daniel Ricciardo and, and Kevin Magnussen who opted to stop behind that safety car. Perhaps, again, it's sort of so difficult. In the heat of the moment at Monaco, it can be a difficult call, but that old rule that track position is king seems certainly not to be abided by in the very close midfield where it would have been difficult to navigate with strategy anyway back from the position they were going to drop to. I think what's really interesting here, and we'll talk in a moment about how Lando Norris essentially helped Carlos Sainz win Class B, is that you know Renault and Haas supposedly should have been the teams leading this midfield. Uh, Renault's had all sorts of problems anyway, but let's say that they really should be. But operationally this year, they've been kind of poor, and the results are starting to show with McLaren doing such a good job and, and really escalating their points advantage in that group. Yeah, um, Renault particularly, both in their 
previous lives as Lotus, as Renault, as Benetton were really, really sharp on race operations. And so really this 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 race was a, a total horror show for them. Haas uh, have, have shown to be sometimes quite clever mm-hmm. with with race operations and then other times not so much. I don't think there's any way of wrapping this up or gift wrapping it very, very neatly for those two teams. It, it, it was a terrible error. And if you look at who actually stopped on lap 11, it was the leading four. It was cars 44, 33, 77 and 5. So as we know, Lewis, Max, Maltery and Vettel. And then uh, further back, we saw Ricardo um, Hulkenberg had to stop because uh, a lap earlier because of damage. George Russell also stopped in that um, that little exchange, but he was uh, running at the back, and um, the uh, he actually registers as, as pitting on lap 10 because he was so far behind. So uh, you know, the it, it was only really the people at the very front and the very back who, who pitted in that thing, and, and really it, it was an absolute catastrophe for for both Ricardo and and Magnussen because they got stuck in that train behind Raikkonen who you know he, he stopped so late I'm gonna have to turn the page uh, <laughs> on, on on my on my lap chart to see it. you know it, it really really was and it, it it was ridiculous so yeah lap 46 uh, Raikkonen stopped and that that killed off the race for a whole bunch of people. Um, Ricardo was stuck behind Raikkonen for one, two, three, four, five, six, seven, eight, nine laps. He'd previously been been stuck behind uh, Lance Stroll, who was stuck behind Raikkonen. So it's basically it was a case of being stuck behind someone who was stuck behind someone who was stuck behind someone who was stuck behind, was stuck behind Kimi, Matthias, Raikkonen, <laughs> and that 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 was the end of their race. There was there was nothing they could do. Which opened up a beautiful window for Carlos Sainz, who was having a, a pretty good weekend up to that point. In fact, it's slowly been coming together for him uh, in his McLaren tenure. Was leading the the midfield, this Class B behind Pierre Gasly, and Norris was deployed quite cleverly here by McLaren by holding up that pack, creating that train, and he managed to go a little bit faster once Sainz had taken his pit stop, but creating a gap for Sainz. And then, I suppose, uh, as, a, as a byproduct, likewise, Daniel Kvyat, Alex Albon, and Romain Grosjean, though later in the race, to stop into, allowing that group of cars that didn't uh, choose to stop behind the safety car to gain massive track position. You could see that Ricardo still had pace towards the end of the race and managed to catch up and, and snatch one place from Grosjean, albeit with the, the aid of a penalty. But it showed how much those cars lost, but how much, I suppose, holding fire at a place like Monaco, keeping track position, really can pay off. Yeah, I, I, I think Science's race particularly was was really, really good because he, he started ninth on the grid and he actually lost a place at turn one to the other Toro Rosso of Alex Albon. Uh, and he just went, he motored straight past Albon at the, the exit of Sandivot, uh, all the way up the hill where you can't, and he was sort of hanging around the outside and you kind of think, well, what are you thinking here, Carlos? Because very often when you get to the top of the hill at Massonet, the, the camber of the road and the bumps, it can just cause you to just kind of get sucked away from the racing line. You can drift off to the right and end up in the barrier, which is quite a a classic crash to have uh, on the run up to Casino Square and he just held it and held it on this line you look at the replay and you think what what are you thinking <laughs> he just drives straight past Kvyat and and nails him uh into Casino Square and, and that was his defining overtake of the race 
uh, as you say, he then benefited from you know the the the, the safety car. Magnuson and Ricardo pitting out of the way. Gasly kind of was was gone by that point. Uh, McLaren can't uh, can't hold a candle to the Red Bull yet. So all Science then had to do was defend his position from the people behind him, and what a lot of people were shaping up to pass him because the the leaders were managing their pace. Uh, Hamilton nursing those medium tires, knowing that he was arguably on the wrong set. So Science was really really under threat, and. He was nearly overcut by Kvyat, who stopped. Um, let me have a quick, yeah. Kvyat stopped two laps after uh, Science did, and when they came out of the pit, Science was only maybe half a car length ahead. Mm-hmm. So that that was you know pretty tricky, very decisive. But but also because of that, the slow pace during that phase of the race, um, Norris was kind of prevailed upon to uh, slow down a little bit. And you saw this gap growing b- between Norris and the cars ahead. And it, it sort of stretched out to 10 seconds, 11 seconds. You kind of think, well, what are you thinking about here, Lando? Uh, and, and Lando didn't stop until what? Let me have a look at my lap chart here. Yeah, lap 47. So sort of 10, 15, 20 laps after everyone else. So he sort of played that running roadblock role to perfection, damaging the races of, of a lot of people behind him. Ricardo, I think you, as, as you say, he demonstrated that that car has potential, but track position is everything at Monaco. Lewis alluded to the fact that previously he'd been leading, come into the pits and that had cost him the race. You would think that the old heads, the wise heads, the experienced heads, the highly paid heads okay. and maths graduated heads on the pit wall, uh, Haas and Renault would think, let's not just go all in on this and give up track position. I think if you pit that early in the Monaco Grand Prix, you really, really are, you know, you are shoving all your chips along the green bays onto one particular number. Well, like always then the story, the Monaco Grand Prix is track position is king, but it's how you get there and how you hold it that decided this Grand Prix. And weirdly, it was the homeboy who didn't finish that kind of had a pretty major influence in the result overall. An interesting race in the unfolding narrative that is the 2019 Formula One season. And Stuart, it was a pleasure to look back on it with you. Indeed, even Even Alanis Morissette would understand the irony of the local boy screwing that race for everyone. That was Stuart Codling, executive editor for F1 Racing Magazine and Autosport. The Strategy Report is powered by Apex Race Manager, the mobile race management simulator. Download the 2019 edition of Apex Race Manager for free for iOS and Android devices. Don't forget, you can get every episode of the Strategy Report by subscribing on Google and Apple Podcasts, Spotify, and on your favourite podcasting app, plus on all of your socials. And while you're there, why Why not leave us a review to help other F1 fans find the show? The Strategy Report is a beer mogul podcast, and if you're hankering for a less serious look back at the week in Formula 1 after the Monaco Grand Prix, have a search for Box of Neutrals in your podcasting app of choice, where this week Rob James and I wonder whether Ferrari can get any more Ferrari after the qualifying shambles in Monte Carlo. I've been Michael Laminato. Look me up at Michael Laminato on Twitter, and I'll catch you in two weeks' time for a wrap-up of the Canadian Grand Prix.